recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, November 15th, 2013. This year's just about passed very, very quickly, and, and from where I sit. Today we will present the Book of Acts, Chapter 20. <clears throat> We're, we'll be about almost three-quarters through with the Book of Acts after, I don't know how many months, maybe six. The um, There was somebody to listen to Acts chapter 14. Recently, I mean, a lot of my listeners are, are far behind on a podcast, right? But they catch up. And this individual sent me a kind of, kind of smart-ass, nasty email that the, um, the Laconians are Israelites, according to Josephus. Well, well, Laconia is kind of a, um, I, I, it's probably a, a late contraction for Lacedaemonia. It was another name for Lacedaemonia. Uh, of course, Lacedaemonia was inhabited from the, the end of the 12th century, for the most part, by Dorian Greeks. And there's a paper on my website that explains that the Lacedaemonians and, and the Dorian Greeks, the Spartans, the, the, the Corinthians... They were all from the children of Israel, but they were all Israelite colonists from Dor, who who also colonized parts of Anatolia, Pamphylia, and, and um, the island of Crete at a very early time, and diverse other places. Well, the um, of course, the Laconians are Israelites. He was offended because I was talking about the Lycaonians. There are several Greek names that are very familiar. We we could trip over easy when we're not familiar with them. Uh, I mean, there's the Aheolians and and there's the Ahitolians and and the T is in the third position of that word is, is the biggest difference between the spelling of the two. And, and I guess maybe to somebody who's untrained, it could be um, or, or unread, I should say. It could be difficult to um, remember some of the minute differences in Greek names, but the Lycaonians of Acts chapter 14 are not Laconians. Lycaonia is in Anatolia. Laconia is in the Peloponnesus. So, so there's a huge difference there. The Lycaonians were um, of earliest times, not the Greek settlers in the Hellenistic period, but the Lycaonians of earliest times were considered barbarians by the Greeks. Homer doesn't even mention the Lycaonians, where the Laconians, of course, are Spartans and they are Greeks. So there's, I, I wish people would just check their facts. All you have to do is check Acts 4, chapter 14, and you'll see it says Lycaonia, and it doesn't say Laconia. I wish people would get their facts straight before they jump the gun, but, but that's, that, that's life in the 20th century. It, it's like internet road rage. Here's something you disagree with and, and jump all over somebody and find out that you were in the wrong lane. That, that's the way it is. And, and this gentleman, he was in the in, in fact, he wasn't even on the highway. So I, I just thought I'd bring that up. It, it's easy to, to um, 
criticize, and, and it's harder to actually read the books, right? With this, we will present Acts chapter 20, almost. In Acts chapter 19, we saw that Paul of Tarsus had spent nearly three years in Ephesus, which was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. Here in this chapter, he'll say it was three years. Paul was the founder of the Christian assemblies in Asia, where we saw in both Acts chapters 18 and 19 that there were only adherents to the teachings of John the Baptist who preceded Paul in Ephesus. And of course, upon his first visit there, he didn't stay long, and he left Priscilla and Aquila behind. But that also helps to establish that like many other prophecies of Scripture, in some respects, the prophecy concerning John the Baptist also fulfilled itself as a process over a considerable period of time, and not only during the years of John's baptism ministry. The word of John was paving the way for Christ through his followers. And we saw that with Apollos in, in Acts chapter 19. Maybe in Acts, at the end of Acts chapter 18, I forget. And, and we also saw it with the 12 men that Paul met when he first arrived in Ephesus in, in Acts chapter 19 in the opening passages. So it's, it, it's the, the, the mission of John the Baptist was still making smooth the path for the gospel of Christ. Ephesus would later be the home of the Apostle John. The, the Apostle John, by, by all accounts, being by far the longest lived of the Apostles. John, after he was released from captivity on the Isle of Patmos, and according to many early Christian writers, Ephesus was the place from where he penned both his gospel and the Revelation, and, and probably his three smaller, shorter epistles. However, John's time in Ephesus follows Paul's sojourn there by nearly 40 years. Nearly, probably over 35 years, let's put it that way. In the Revelation, in the message to the assembly of Ephesus, Paul's ministry was given approbation by Christ himself, since only that gospel professed by Paul could have been the first love of the Ephesians. And by John's time, 30-some-odd years later, nearly 40 years later, they had gone astray. Paul planned to travel to Rome as early as his stay in Ephesus, where it is recorded in Acts chapter 19, in verse 21, and as he completed these things, Paul was sent in the Spirit, passing through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying that after my being there, it is necessary for me also to see Rome. That's pertinent to this chapter, and we will see why in, in several verses. And sending into Macedonia two of those ministering with him, Timothy and Erastus, he stayed for a time in Asia. Paul certainly did accomplish these things, but not in the manner he expected. 
since he did go through Greece once more, and on to Jerusalem as a free man, but from there he was later sent to Roman chains. At this point, there cannot be much more than a year left to Paul's ministry, here at the beginning of Acts chapter 20, if it's a year before his arrest in Jerusalem. We shall continue with Acts chapter 20, where Paul is about to leave Ephesus, never to see the city again. With verse 1. And after the cessation of the tumult, the tumult that happened when the silversmith, Demetrius the silversmith, raised a, a mob in the, in, in the stadium and attempted to more or less coax the people of the city into persecuting Paul and his fellow Christians because they were afraid they were going to lose business if, in fact, large numbers of people were converted to Christianity and, and they weren't going to sell their gold and silver trinkets, right? And after the cessation of the tumult, Paul, sending after and encouraging the students, saluting them, departed to go into Macedonia. Spending nearly three years in Ephesus, as he himself tells us in verse 31 of this chapter, in the aftermath of the trouble with the silversmiths, Paul departs for one last visit to Greece. This is certainly the early part of the year 56 AD, and we cannot ascertain whether Paul was able to stay in Ephesus until the Pentecost of that year, as he had planned when, while he was still in Ephesus, he wrote his letter to the, his, what we know as his first letter, but it was really his second letter to the Corinthians, where at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 80 said, now I will remain in Ephesus until the Pentecost. That was his plan. Indeed, a great and productive opportunity has been opened to me, and many are in opposition. Paul spoke about that opposition earlier in his epistle to the Corinthians, that same epistle, where he said at 1 Corinthians 15.32, If, like a man, I have fought with beasts in Ephesus, what good is it to me if the dead are not raised? Writing about the resurrection. That opposition seems to precede what had happened with Demetrius and the silversmiths, which is described at the very end of Acts chapter 19. Since there is no indication that Paul was in a hurry to leave Ephesus when he wrote the epistle, a circumstance which is certainly inferred here at the beginning of Acts chapter 20, that, that he did hasten to leave Ephesus. This Pentecost, which Paul planned on spending in Ephesus, seemed imminent when he wrote his epistle to the Corinthians. And therefore, since he must have taken some time traveling in Macedonia, which we'll see in Acts chapter 20, verse 2, and then he spent three months in Greece, Acts chapter 20, verse 3, and then he spent some additional time in travel while returning to Anatolia through Macedonia and further tarrying in the Troad, Acts chapter 20, verse 5. It seems 
that another year must have transpired in the course of all these things. And that the Pentecost of Acts chapter 20, verse 16, must be the following Pentecost, a year beyond the one he had planned to spend in Ephesus. This is even more evident since departing the Troad and stopping at Miletus, as we will see in this chapter, after Paul finally sails for Syria, he spends a significant amount of time in various other places in Palestine before going to Jerusalem for the Pentecost of 57 AD. That time is described in the opening verses of chapter 21. The Pentecost of Acts chapter 20, verse 16, which he hopes to make it to Jerusalem by, is certainly that of 57 AD, and we will see that from circumstances which are illustrated in the later chapters of the book of Acts, especially with the Roman, pure, the, the Roman procurators Felix and Festus. We know from archaeological records when they were the procurators in Judea. We know that Festus took his office in 59. And we, and as the popular chronologies are counted, right? I'm not saying that they're perfect either, but we have to have some sort of measure to, to, to measure by. Festus took his office in 59, and Paul had been, a, had, had been arrest, under arrest for two years when that happened. So that's how we know that the Pentecost upon which he arrives in Jerusalem is 57. Acts chapter 20, verse 2. And passing through those parts and encouraging them, the Codex Beze has consulting them, with many words, he went into Greece, and, and that phrase, many words, is literally much speech in Greek, the word logos being singular. It must have taken Paul at least a couple of months to sail from Ephesus to Macedonia and then to travel once again through Macedonia and through Greece visiting each of the assemblies. Writing what we now know as his second epistle to the Corinthians, in chapter 1, Paul talks of the affliction which he had suffered in Asia which must refer to the events in Ephesus recorded in Acts chapter 19. He had also discussed his initial travel plans, where he hoped first to go to Corinth, and then to Macedonia, and then on to Judea from Macedonia, and through Corinth once again, and he discusses that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Plans which were later altered. And at the end of that chapter in verse 23, Paul explains to the Corinthians why he changed his plans where he said, Now I appeal to Yahweh as a witness upon my soul that sparing you I had not yet come to Corinth. So he decided to go to Macedonia first and write to Corinthians ahead of his arrival in Corinth. 
Paul then wrote in chapter 2 of the same epistle in verse 12. Now coming to Troas, Troas being the, the, the primary city of the Troad, right? In regard to the good message of the anointed, and an opportunity being opened to me by the prince, I had no rest in my spirit upon my not finding Titus my brother. Then taking leave of them, I had gone out into Macedonia. From that we learn that Paul left Ephesus on foot, traveling to the Troad, which is quite a, quite a trip, to cross the sea into Macedonia from there, rather than leaving Ephesus by sea. Ephesus was also a port city, right? The context of the balance of two Corinthians, which is readily evident, especially from chapter 8 and chapter 9, chapter 8 and onward, the context shows that Paul had recently been in Macedonia when he wrote the epistle and was now planning on coming to Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul discusses the collection for the poor in Jerusalem, how diligent the Macedonians had been in their charity, and how he anticipates that the Corinthians would be the same. Throughout the epistle, he looks forward to seeing the Corinthians once again. Therefore, it is absolutely certain that Paul must have written his epistle, now known as 2 Corinthians, on this trip described in Acts chapter 20, verse 2, as he was departing Macedonia and headed for Greece, and headed specifically for to, to Corinth. As an aside, this is a long parenthetical note, right? In the last chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, this is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two witnesses, even three, shall every matter be established. I have said beforehand, and I warn, while being present the second time and being absent now, to those who have failed before and to all the rest, that if I come, perhaps, in that I will not again be sparing. Now, whenever Paul was in Corinth the second time, cannot be told from Scripture. Paul is recorded as having left Corinth after his long sojourn there in Acts chapter 18, verse 18. He spent considerable time there, over a year and a half, and traveled through Syria and Anatolia, going by boat to Caesarea, and going to Antioch in Syria, in Syria which is near Calicia and, and Anatolia, and then traveling west again on foot through Galatia and Phrygia and into Ephesus on foot. And he stayed in Ephesus 
he arrives there in the beginning of Acts chapter 19. And he stayed there for three years and traveling through. He couldn't have been in Corinth. Luke opens Acts chapter 19 by stating that, and it came to pass with Apollos being in Corinth, Paul had passed through the highlands, but which infers that Paul had walked through the mountainous regions that, are, that, that lie between Galatia and Phrygia and the province of Asia where Ephesus is. There are quite a few mountains. Paul walked through the highlands to come down to Ephesus. That's the opening of Acts 19. And Luke does not record Paul's ever leaving Ephesus until this time here in, a, in the beginning of Acts chapter 20, three years later. But it is only possible that sometime during that three years, Paul made a voyage to visit Corinth. And probably towards the beginning of his stay in Ephesus, for which Apollos is mentioned in the beginning of Acts chapter 19, as Paul enters Ephesus, that Apollos is in Corinth. But Luke didn't record a voyage of Paul to Corinth. But Paul had to make one, or he's a liar in the last chapter of 2 Corinthians. And, and I don't, Paul's not a liar. He's explaining that he clearly made a, a second trip to Corinth, and now he's traveling down from Macedonia on foot through Greece, writing the Corinthians ahead of time, expecting to see them and telling them he had already been there twice, when, when the book of Acts only records that he had been there once between Acts chapter 18, verse 1, and chapter 18, verse 18. It's very possible Paul made a short voyage to Corinth from Ephesus, it's not that far. And Luke simply didn't record it. There's a reason why Luke didn't record it, and, and we'll see that in a couple of verses, because it's evident that Luke hasn't spent a whole lot of time with Paul ever since Paul and Luke arrived in Philippi, and, and we'll see that momentarily. However, that Paul, at the beginning of his sojourn in Ephesus, made a trip to Corinth, which is left unrecorded in Acts, that would explain how Paul was so familiar with the ministry of Apollos in Corinth, and Paul displayed that knowledge when he wrote his first epistle to the Corinthians, while he was in Ephesus. So that, that, that's, that there's some conjecture there. But Paul had to make a trip to Corinth while he was in Ephesus, and it's probably towards the beginning of his stay in Ephesus because he was familiar with Apollos' ministry there, and, and he wrote about it and, and, and mentioned Apollos many times in the first epistle to the Corinthians, which was written from Ephesus. In the second epistle to the Corinthians, where Paul is anticipating seeing them as he leaves Macedonia traveling into Greece, he doesn't mention Apollos at all. 
it also seems that Paul wrote his first epistle to Timothy while he was here in Greece, whether in, in somewhere else in Greece or in Corinth, after he departed from Ephesus, after he traveled through Macedonia, just like two Corinthians, he wrote Timothy around the same time or from the three months that he spent in, in Greece after he got there. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy, in chapter 1, verse 3, Just as I, traveling into Macedonia, so that's a thing of the past, had summoned you to remain in Ephesus, so Paul's departing Ephesus is a thing of the past, that you should command some not to teach errors. The epistle makes no indication whatsoever of anything subsequent to Paul's sojourn in Greece here at this point, and there is no indication of anything that he suffered in Jerusalem which led to his arrest. Therefore, This time which Paul spends in Greece is the most likely candidate for the time of his having written that epistle. I'm certain that I could say that without, without hesitation, but with no hesitation. Verse 3, and spending or literally doing, the Greeks did time like prisoners do, right? And spending three months, there being a plot against him by the Judeans, being about to set sail for Syria. So Paul was going to set sail for Syria after spending three months in, in Greece. He became knowledgeable for which to return through Macedonia. So he walked back through Macedonia instead. probably to Philippi, as we shall see. Whether departing for Syria from Corinth or from the Troad, in either event, Paul may have stopped at Miletus because it was on the way from either place, right? Miletus is kind of on the southwestern corner of Anatolia. And from Miletus, as we shall see here, he summoned the elders of the assemblies of Ephesus, for the discourse, which is recorded in Acts chapter 21, and here, I'm sorry, at the end of Acts chapter 20, I'm ahead of myself. However, Paul stopping in the Troad evidently afforded him the opportunity to do something else before going on to Syria and to Jerusalem. Because this, Paul in the Troad is almost certainly where he wrote his epistle to the Romans. I'll read verse 4 before explaining that. And verse 5. And there followed along with him Sopatris of Purus, and the, the Masoretic text wants that word, Purus, Purus, P-U-R-R-O-S, I'm sorry. So Patris of Purus Baroya and the Thessalonians, or the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derbe 
and Timotheus and the Asians, Tuchicus and Trophimus. Now there are some variations in, in, in the um in various texts, the Codex Alexandrinus, the Laudianus, and the majority text begin the verse they begin verse four by saying, and they're followed along with him as far as Asia. Which would mean that those men didn't proceed with him any further than Miletus, because Miletus is in Asia. Here Paul is en route to the Troad. The Troad isn't, it, it's not technically considered part of Asia. It was always considered separately, even if it's part of the Roman province. So, so that's arguable, right? And these, going ahead for us, waited in the Troad. But we sailed out from Philippus after the days of unleavened bread. And we came to them in the Troad after five days, where we spent seven days. Luke. Luke seems to have been separated from Paul for quite some time. It is evident that Luke and Paul parted ways in Luke, in, in, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 16, verse 40, and Acts chapter 17, verse 1, where it is recorded that Paul and Silas departed from Philippi after being released from the jail while leaving Luke behind. Luke says that they left. Here, once again, for the first time since Acts chapter 16, Luke writes in the first person where it is evident by saying, by saying we. He says we several times here, and he says us, right? He's using first-person pronouns for the first time since Acts chapter 16. Here, Luke writes in the first person where it is evident that he meets Paul in the Troad and that he came from Philippi, where Paul left him behind in order to do so. Now, this is at least seven years, and perhaps a little longer, after the time when Paul and Luke first arrived in Philippi, as it is described in Acts chapter 16. In that seven-year period, Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth, he spent three years in Ephesus. He spent a considerable amount of time, we're not told how much, in Antioch in Acts chapter 18, where he has his final confrontation with Peter. He spends a considerable amount of time in travel on foot from Antioch all the way to Ephesus, all the way across modern Turkey. And he visits Corinth again and and two trips to Macedonia. So it's at least seven years and probably eight and or longer since he left Luke. Well, well since him and Luke first arrived in Philippi. And, and, and Luke clearly, at the end of Acts chapter 16, says that Paul left him behind there. Now, comparing the names of the men 
who are here with Paul, as we have just seen in Acts 20, verse 4, to those men who were with him, when the epistle to the Romans was written, who were listed from Romans chapter 16, verse 21, and some of the subsequent verses, and singing, Timothy, Luke, Sosipatris, who was only called Sopatris here in Acts, Timothy, Luke, Sosipatris, and Gaius in the list, along with several men from the province of Asia, it is certain that the epistle to the Romans was indeed written here. This is especially evident after reading Paul's own words in Romans chapter 15, where the narrative matches the circumstance here precisely. In that chapter of Romans, Paul expresses a desire to visit Rome, and he says from verse 22, on account, on which account I also had often been hindered in coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these regions, meaning Asia and, and the Troad and Greece and, and Macedonia, and having a longing to come to you for many years. Perhaps as I journey into Spain, therefore I expect to be passing across to see you, and by you to be escorted there, meaning to Spain, if, however, of you first I am somewhat satisfied. But now I travel to Jerusalem in service to the saints. So Paul's on his way to Jerusalem, writing Romans. They of Macedonia and Achaia had been, meaning that he's already departed from Macedonia and Achaia, had been glad to make a certain contribution for the needy of the saints who are in Jerusalem. This is the subject of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, right? Indeed, they were well pleased, and their debtors they are. For if the nations share with them in the things of the Spirit, then they are obliged to minister to them in the things of the flesh. Now this being accomplished in this prophet, having been assured to them, meaning delivered in Jerusalem. I will depart by you or through you, through Rome, towards Spain. When we compare those words to the lists of men here with Paul and the Troad and the list of men who greet, who Paul says, you know, greet the Romans, the assemblies in Rome, All of this coordinates perfectly with the circumstances here in Acts and with the circumstances at the writing of Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. For he wrote that epistle some months before this one while he was in Greece. As he was departing for Macedonia, 
departing Macedonia for Achaia and was about to visit Corinth for the last time and departing Achaia back through Macedonia, he is now in the Troad writing the epistle to the Romans en route to Jerusalem with the gifts from those assemblies which he would deliver to the saints there, the saints in Jerusalem, who couldn't work. They couldn't work. They, they, they were persecuted by the Jews. They couldn't leave their, their apartments. That this is a purpose of his traveling to Jerusalem at this time is further verified in Acts chapter 24, verse 17, where after being arrested, Paul had professed that his purpose for going to Jerusalem was, in part, where he explains, and I quote, that after many years, I came making acts of charity and offerings to my nation. Paul, therefore, wrote his epistle to the Romans here in a Troad. And there is great poetic irony in that because the Romans themselves had migrated to Italy from the Troad 1,200 years before. Now, the Tychicus Tuchicus, T-U-C-H-I-K-O-S, or T-Y-C-H-I-C-U-S, depending on the Greek spelling of the Roman, or the Latin, I should say. The Tychicus, who is mentioned here, he later delivered Paul's epistle to the Ephesians from Rome, where it was written. Ephesians chapter 6 informs us of that. The Aristarchus, who is mentioned here, Aristarchus the Macedonian, who accompanies Paul from Macedonia to the Troad here, Aristarchus was arrested and sent to Rome with Paul. Acts chapter 27, verse 2. Colossians 4.10 and Philemon the closing verses of the epistle to Philemon. Aristarchus is mentioned in all of them. It is clear from the narrative of Acts that Luke was with Paul the entire time he was under arrest as far as Rome. And Timothy was also arrested with Paul. But Timothy was released before Paul was sent to Rome, as we see when Paul wrote his epistle to the Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23 which I am persuaded, for that reason alone, was written while he was under arrest and before he was sent to Rome. Trophimus, the Ephesian, the Asian who's with Paul here, Trophimus appears to have been with Paul in Jerusalem from Acts chapter 21, verse 29. But there's a problem here. It is then said to Timothy that Paul left Trophimus behind sick in Miletus. So there's, con there's some confusion there. And I'm not certain I could straighten it out. To Timothy was written several years after Paul had last been in Miletus. To Timothy 
was, I mean, Paul was about to die. He said that he was ready to die when he wrote to Timothy. He, that was one of the last epistles of his ministry. So the two accounts, Paul's words concerning leaving Trophimus behind in Miletus and 2 Timothy, and, and Paul's words, in, or, or Luke's record, I should say, in Acts 21-29, if indeed it's Luke's, I, I mean that there's interpolations in all these manuscripts. Look, Luke's record are, are difficult to reconcile. In any event, these men with Paul, we see that many of these men were later in bondage with Paul, especially Timothy and Aristarchus. And that's a fact which is often totally overlooked. It's overlooked because Paul is the central figure of Luke's account. You know, it's, it's the same. It, it, it was the writing style of the day where, where the... Um, the many women who, who looked after Christ and, and made sure that he ate and, and, and had clothes and slept or whatever they did for him, that the, the gospel tells us that they cared for him as he traveled from, um, from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem, and, and they watched him as, as he was executed. Well, well, those women are hardly mentioned until that explanation is made later on in the scripture discussing the witnesses to his execution. So, so that, that's the writing style of the day is to follow the central figure and, and um, not to dwell on the, the people in that central figure's orbit. It, it goes all the way back to the time of Abraham. Abraham left um the household of his father, but with hundreds of people. But you don't see it in, in the Genesis account. You'll see that he took some people with him from the household of his uh, from the household of his father, from his hometown, so to speak, when he went to the land of Canaan. But but then when um well, when he has the battle with the kings, he's got a couple of hundred warriors. So he he took a great deal of people from from. Haran into the land of Canaan with him, far more than 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 the early accounts indicate. If he had, if if he could equip three hundred men with, with with implements of war, I mean that's pretty significant. But you don't read about them in Abraham's travels. They have to be there though. Yet you didn't travel around in the ancient world alone and and, and live. So so the Bible narrative follows the central figure. Paul has all these other men with him, and they're all seen to be that they're all seen to be imprisoned with him later on. But only Paul is mentioned. Acts chapter twenty, verse seven. And on the first day of the week, upon our gathering to break bread, Paul conversed with them, being about to leave the next day. His speech extended until midnight, and there were many dormers in the upper room where we were gathered. Now, now that phrase, first day of the week, is literally the first of the Sabbaths, and the word Sabbath 
in Greek is plural, the way in which the weeks were expressed in Greek because there was no word for week in Greek as we know it. Here, here translating the Christogenia New Testament, I did something highly unusual. This word dormers. I followed the Codex Beze, the Codex that's full of interpolations. There's a specific reason why I did that. That This is trite. It, it's not interesting history. It's trite. It, it's a matter of translation. It's, it, it's trivial. But the Codex Beze here has a word, hupo lampades, which is plural. It's plural for hupo lampas. All the other manuscripts have the word lampades, L-A-M-P-A-D-E-S, which is plural for lampas, L-A-M-P-A-S in Greek, in Greek letters. All the other manuscripts have literally lamps. That's what a lampas is. It's a lamp. It's, guess what? It's where we get the English word lamp from, right? From Greek. It's a Greek word. Hupo lampades. The word hupolampus, it's not a different kind of lamp. It's an architectural term. And the ninth edition of Liddell and Scott in their Greek, the large Greek-English lexicon, they explain it, they say that it's part of a stoa which possesses epistulia, dakoi, and, and a parastates, or, or parastates, which is a roof, and, and, and beams and tiles, and a hoopolampus is a structure. It possesses a roof and beams and, and tiles on the roof. A stoa is a sort of roofed colonnade, a cloister, a portico. And epistulion is an architrave. It's the lintel or top pillars that supports the stoa, right? The dockway or beams. What we have here is an architectural term, hupo lampas. The setting here being an upper room or an attic, the word certainly describes an opening to the outside through which light would shine if you were on a if you were on the ground looking at a building you would see all of the light coming out of the various dormers in, in, in this structure, in this building. That's what I imagine was being described here when I translated the Christogenian New Testament. This seems to fit the context much better than lamps, which are expected to be present in any ancient building where people are awake at night. There's nothing special about a lot of lamps in a large building. There is something special about a large building with a large attic that has many dormers going around it. And if you turn your attic lights on and go out, if you have that type of house, I don't, but I've seen plenty of them, and, and you go out and you look at the dormers and you see the lights, right? I, I mean, so so that makes sense in the context here. What where um, what where this young man is about to fall out one of the windows in in one of those dormers. So so that, that makes sense to me, and it, it's trivial, but it's it it 
it's a demonstration of my reasoning behind my translations. I didn't just make stuff up, right? Verse 9. Not, no matter what some of my critics think. They're clowns. Verse 9. And there was a certain young man named Eutychus. Eutychus actually means fortunate. Sitting by the window, being weighed down in sleep, in deep sleep, Upon Paul's conversing further, weighed down by sleep, he fell down from the third story. And that term, that, that phrase, the third story, is literally from a Greek word which means having three roofs. That, that's the literal translation. He, he fell down from something having three roofs. That's why the King James has, in its archaic language, it has the third loft, I think, or something like that. But it's the third story in our modern terminology. And was taken for dead, or he was taken up dead. The Christian New Testament reads that verb, hiero, or a hero, rather metaphorically, it could very well be taken up dead. It, it doesn't really matter. It's very clear that this man is, this young man is esteemed to be dead after this disastrous fall. But going down, Paul fell upon him and embracing him said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. Then going up and breaking bread and eating and talking at length until dawn, thusly he departed. Now that word eating is literally tasting. The word is guomahi, Strong's number 1089. It's often meta metaphorically to eat, it's literally to taste. The entire phrase may have been rendered eating and keeping company for considerable time until dawn. Since the verb which I've rendered as talking here is homileo, 3656, and it means to be in company with or consort with people. It's a little more than talking. It's to hold conversation with. Now, this is, I had to throw this into my notes. This is entirely conjectural. Here we have Luke hadn't seen Paul in a long time, and, and they get together and they're in the Troad. And they get together in this, in this room, and this whole group of men, and we're not told that Tertius is there. We're not. Tertius is the man who wrote out the epistle to the Romans. But I could imagine Luke not having seen Paul in some time, busily catching up on his notes in preparation for the writing of this very book of Acts, taking the, the, the accounts which Paul may have jotted down or collected or, or which Luke jotted down from him along the way. And Paul may have been talking all night because he was dictating the epistle to the Romans. That, that supposition I, I, I feel safe to make it's um, there's no doubt in my mind that Romans was written during this several day stay in the Troad. So I, I just had to draw that mental picture because that's what came to my mind when I realized that the epistle to the Romans was written here. 
Verse 12. And they brought the youth alive and were comforted without measure. And the fact that they brought the youth here is the reason why I translated the verb a hero, which literally means to take up, like they picked him up and brought him back up to the third floor, which is why I translated it metaphorically as taken for dead, because they didn't bring him until verse 12, right? So, so there, there's some thinking that goes into translating, and I'm, I just don't shoot from the hip. I read ahead and, and try to get the sense of the context, right? The codices, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, Laudianus, and the majority text all have going forth by ship in verse 13. They brought the youth alive. They were comforted without measure. Verse 13 says, Then we going ahead by ship set sail for Assis. There going to pick up Paul, for thusly making arrangements he himself was going to walk. Now, the Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, Laudianus, and the majority text upon which the King James is based have going forth by ship. The Codex Beze has going down to the ship. The text of the Christian New Testament here follows the Codices Sinaiticus and Ephraim Siri. The phrase to pick up to pick up Paul is literally also to take up, but this time it's a different verb. It's analambano. Asses, then we going ahead by ship set sail for Asses, verse 13. Asses was a port city. It was on the southerly side of a peninsula, which by land was just over 20 miles from Troas. And Troas was on the northerly side of the same peninsula. So the ship has to go around the peninsula while Paul walks across it, right? That's the picture that we should have. The distance sail by sea was at least as far as 50 miles. This wasn't a race. Some commentators have, oh, Paul raced the ship. No, it wasn't a race. That's silly. It was very likely that the ship had an exchange of freight, and that's why it was stopping at Assis. It may be laid over for several hours, and it would most likely, after sailing 50 miles, be laid over overnight if it had an exchange of freight in addition to a 50-mile sail, and the distance by sea is at least 50 miles. Now, we are not informed of Paul's reason for walking, but Paul had traversed the Troad earlier in his ministry. He did so in Acts chapter 16 while he was traveling from Galatia and went to Troas to sail to Macedonia, to Philippi, or Thessalonica, I believe, at that time. Verse 14. And as he met with us in Assis, Picking him up, we went to Mytilene. And from there, sailing off the next day, we arrived opposite Chios. And on the next day, came by to Samos. Then on the following, we came into Miletus. Now there's some variations in, in the text describing this trip. But all the manuscripts basically have the same 
stopping points. Traveling down the western coast of Anatolia, Mytilene was a city on the island of Lesbos, on the side which faced the coast of Anatolia. Chios was another island south of Lesbos. And Samos was a third island south of Chios. And Samos laid parallel to the bay, well, it still does, right? Parallel to the bay which leads into Ephesus. Miletus, a very ancient city, was only about 30 miles south of Ephesus as birds fly. But because of the geography of the land, the land is very mountainous and, and very broken up by the coastline, it must have been at least twice that far by foot, and possibly even further than that. Strabo relates the founding of Miletus in ancient times by Cretans under Sarpedon. Sarpedon was said to be a brother of the famous King Minos, and Strabo tells us that the city was occupied by Carians. He is said, Sarpedon is said to have come from Miletus in Crete, a city which is no longer extant in Strabo's own time. As we saw while presenting Acts chapter 16, the famous pagan temple at Delphi was said to have received its priesthood of men from Crete. We also saw that, speaking of the, the Corinthians, that the Dorian Greeks, at the time of the Trojan War, Homer imagined that the Dorian Greeks were only on Crete. Strabo said that not only the Carians, who in earlier times were islanders, but also the Leleges, as they say, became mainlanders with the aid of the Cretans, who founded, among other places, Miletus, having taken Sarpedon from the Cretan Miletus as founder. And they settled the Termolahi in the country which is now called Lycia. And they say that these settlers were brought to Crete by Sarpedon, a brother of Minos. Elsewhere, Strabo debates the identification of the Lelegas with the Carians, but explains that they inhabited the same territory together, and also that the Lelegas inhabited a part of the Troad, from which they were driven after Troy's fall. Strabo's geography, various citations from books 7, 12, and 14. Carians including men from Miletus, as well as Lycians, are mentioned by Homer in his list of Troy's defenders against the Danan Greeks. In the Iliad, Book 2, Miletus was one of those cities taken by the Ionians in the 9th and 8th centuries B.C., 300 years, 400 years after the Trojan War. Herodotus explained that the Ionians who settled in the conquered city of Miletus brought no wives with them, but married Carian girls. Perhaps the city's most famous citizen, the Greek philosopher Thales, 
who lived in the late 7th and early 6th centuries B.C., who was one of the so-called seven sages of Greece, was said by Herodotus to be a man of militus of Phoenician descent. The Carians were esteemed to be Phoenicians. Throughout his geography, Strabo recounts the many colonies later founded by Malaysians, colonies around the Black Sea, the shores of the Black Sea, and on the Danube River. Some of today's Germans may well have descended from Malaysians. In other sources, the Malaysians were also said to have settled in Spain and also in Ireland. The Millids, who invaded Ireland sometime after the Tawatha de Danon, or the tribe of Dan. So Miletus had a mixed Ionian-Phoenician population, counting the Carians and the Lelegas as islanders, they were Phoenicians. Paul had spent three years in Asia, and now he, he is absent from there for at least a year. A stop in Ephesus, I'm sorry, he spent at least three years in Ephesus and is now absent from there for at least a year. A stop there would have necessitated a reunion for which he did not want to spend time. Therefore, he only called for the elders of the assembly of Ephesus to see him in Miletus. However, it still must have taken at least a day or two for a messenger to reach Ephesus from Miletus. That would be a messenger on horseback. And at least that much longer for those elders to respond by coming to Miletus. So that circumstance informs us that the assembly at Ephesus must have become quite large. Paul would rather stop at Miletus and send and wait three, maybe four days to see the assembly, that the elders of the assembly, it would take him at least three and perhaps four or five to, to get to Miletus. Verse 18, and as they came to him, he said to them, you know from the first day from which I set foot in Asia, this, this shows us how tersely worded the account in Acts is, right? It had to take three or four days to get the elders from Ephesus, to get word from Miletus to Ephesus and get the elders from Ephesus to Miletus probably took at least four or five days And, and Luke, in reading this account, if you didn't know any better, you'd think this all happened in a couple of hours. Paul sent from, from Miletus to Ephesus for the elders of the assembly, and the next verse says, and as they came to him, he said to them, well, well that, that, that the, the unsuspecting reader could think, well, that took a few hours. He sent down the road for them, and, and they came and, and saw them. It, it may have taken a week. It, it, it was definitely a trip. And as they came to him, he said to them, You know from the first day which I set foot in Asia, how I had been at all times with you, serving the prince, or the Lord, with all humility and tears and trials befalling me by the plots of the Judeans. How I withheld nothing of advantage, 
for which not to report to you and to teach you publicly and in each house, affirming both to Judeans and the Greeks repentance to Yahweh and faith in our Prince Yahshua. Here it is evident that some of the men whom Paul is addressing must have been those whom he first met in Ephesus, where he says, from the first day. Therefore, it is very likely that some of these men were those from among the first twelve that he had met coming into Ephesus, those men who were disciples of John the Baptist, as we see in the opening verses of Acts chapter 19. The circumstances outlined here in Paul's testimony to the Ephesians demonstrate that it was indeed he who had brought the gospel to Ephesus, and therefore his teaching was indeed the first love which the assembly of Ephesus later departed from, for which Yahshua had chastised them in the Revelation through the Apostle John. Verse 22. And now, behold, I have been bound by the Spirit to go into Jerusalem not knowing the things which shall meet me in her, but that the Holy Spirit in each city affirmed to me, saying that bonds and tribulation await me. Now, the Codex Beze has the words in Jerusalem interpolated to the end of verse 23. However, Paul does not receive an explicit warning in relation to Jerusalem until the prophecy of Hagabus described in Acts chapter 21, where we read from verse 10, and we'll read this again next week, I'm sorry. And upon abiding many days there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Hagabus, and coming to us and taking Paul's belt, binding his own feet and hands, said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, The man whose belt this is, thusly the Judeans in Jerusalem shall bind, and they shall deliver him into the hands of the heathens, of the people. However, being persecuted everywhere he went, as the records of Acts clearly relate, Paul did understand that his arrest and possible execution were imminent. And that is what, is he, that is what he expresses here. It would be natural for him to be most concerned about going to Jerusalem above all other cities. Jerusalem, and not Rome, was the source of Christian persecution from the beginning. And, as it has often been cited here in these programs, early Christian writers such as Tertullian and Minucius Felix blamed the Jews for the persecution of Christians by the Romans as well, that the Jews instigated it. I'm going to read one, a short few lines from my March 2012 commentary on 1 Peter chapter 3, where I said, 
The ancient Roman historian Tacitus claimed that Christians were notoriously depraved and had antisocial tendencies and were persecuted for being incendiary. He says that in the Annals of Rome, chapters 14 and 15. The later Christian bishop Tertullian tells us that the Jews fashioned all sorts of false allegations against the Christians, so far even as to accuse them of ritual infanticide. He says that in his Apology, section 8. The Christian apologist Minutius Felix said that Christians were accused of worshipping monsters, of devouring infants and holding incestuous feasts and referring to the to those enemies of Christ he said that the demons referring to the Jews Minutius Felix said that the demons were forever setting fables afloat without either investigation or proof they were constantly accusing Christians before the Romans sounds like the Jewish tales of Tsarist Russia and Nazi Germany all over again. Verse 24. But not of any account do I make my life valuable for myself that I shall complete my course and the service which I received from Prince Yahshua to affirm the good message of the favor of Yahweh. To affirm the good message of the favor of Yahweh. And now behold, I know that no longer shall you see my face. All of you among whom I passed, proclaiming the kingdom. Now at the end of this verse, the Codex Beze interpolates of Yahshua. The Codex Laudianus and the majority text have of God. As we have seen in Acts chapters 14, referring to Paul's discourse to the Lycaonians, and in Acts chapter 17 to the Athenians, while Paul did not proclaim the favor of the kingdom of God to those people, the people in Lycaonia or in Athens, because they were not Israel, he did speak to them within the terms of the wider Adamic covenants which are found in the Old Testament scriptures. However, the favor or the grace of God was prophesied exclusively for the children of Israel, as it is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 2. Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest as we see the woman flee into the wilderness in Revelation chapter 12, fleeing from the wrath of the dragon to obtain rest. Furthermore, the promise of the kingdom of God was made only concerning Israel. And this too is often mentioned in the prophets. For instance, in Hosea chapter 13, Yahweh said through the prophet, O Israel, Thou hast destroyed thyself. Remember, Hosea is writing right at the time of the Assyrian deportations of Israel. Thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. 
I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And again, in Zechariah, long after the old kingdoms of Israel and Judah were destroyed, Zechariah was a second temple prophet. Yahweh said through the prophet in chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, messianic prophecy. Thy king cometh unto thee. He is just in having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Therefore, since these promises were made only to the children of Israel, Paul proclaimed the favor in the kingdom of Yahweh God only to the dispersions of Israel. He didn't proclaim them to the Lycaonians. He didn't proclaim them to the Athenians. These are the people to whom Paul delivered the gospel of Christ. And their restoration to the favor of Yahweh their God brings about the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. As we see that even the apostles anticipated in Acts chapter 1, where it is written, So then they who were gathered asked him, saying, Prince, then at this time shall you restore the kingdom to Israel? Right to the very end. In the last verse of the book of Acts, this is one thing, this is one thing that does not change. This is one thing that does not change in the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Luke records in the last verse of Acts that Paul sat in Rome under house arrest preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reading from the King James. With all confidence to no man forbidding him. And right to the end, Paul says that for the hope of the 12 tribes of Israel, am I bound in these chains? Therefore, there may be a religious transition from one end of Acts to the other. But the scope of the prophets concerning the people intended to be heirs of the covenant, that does not change. Explicitly. Verse 26 on which account I testify to you on this day today that I am clean from the blood of all. For I have not withheld for which to not report all of the will of Yahweh to you. Again, Paul wouldn't teach redemption and, and restoration and and. and the covenants to the Athenians and, and to the Lycaonians, we sure as hell shouldn't teach them to chinks and niggers. Non-Israelites have no part in the word of God, and Paul would have no right to report the word of Yahweh to them, as we see in Psalm 147. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and judgments unto Israel. 
He has not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. Paul's epistles show again and again the knowledge which he had that he was bringing the gospel of Christ to the long-dispersed tribes of Israel. We pray that we can start presenting that here in the months to come, perhaps by March or April. Verse 28. You take heed for yourselves and for all the flock over which the Holy Spirit appointed you overseers to tend to the assembly of Yahweh, which he, which he preserved for himself by his own blood. Now the codices, this is important, that this reflects a, a lot of the debate of the early centuries of Christianity right here. The codices Alexandrinus, Ephraimisiri, Beze, and Laudianus, they are all esteemed to be from the 5th century. They all have assembly of the Lord. You appointed you overseers to tend to the assembly of the Lord, which he preserved for himself by his own blood, which can refer to Christ, or it could refer to God. But in the New Testament, in a New Testament context, not in quotes from the Old Testament, it almost always refers to Christ. Now, the majority text has of the Lord and of God, the assembly of the Lord and of God. The King James Version of the Bible does not follow the majority text here. It simply has God. Where the Christianity New Testament, of course, has the assembly of Yahweh. This is important. The Christianity New Testament here, which has the assembly of Yahweh, which could be read the assembly of God if we want to read the word theos in Greek according to proper secular Greek. I have no problem with that. The Christianity New Testament follows the codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, which are both fourth century codices, right? When this reads the assembly of God or the assembly of Yahweh, which he preserved for himself by his own blood, that's an explicit assertion that Christ is God. Passages such as these, where we see these differences certainly reflect the dispute over the divinity of Christ which we see amongst early Christians, or perhaps between early Christians and early pseudo-Christians. That's a possibility also. It's interesting to see which of the major codexes, which of the ancient codexes have which reading, because... But when we see the earliest codices agree, and they both have God, in a place as important as this, and then we see all these 5th century codices all change it to Lord, to Curios in Greek, right? From Theos to Curios. Curios can be, is usually a title for Christ in the New Testament. We see which of the codices 
dispute the deity of Christ. It's pretty obvious to me. There are many other reasons why I prefer to follow the codices Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, but and and they're not perfect. Sometimes they disagree with each other. It's flip a coin. I always try to make my translational decisions, and which which manuscript I follow in in a given place, based upon the context of the whole Bible. And we know that Yahshua Christ is God. Now that verb, peripoieo, to make, to remain over and above, to keep safe, to preserve, and as Liddell and Scott explain, in the medium voice, to keep or save for oneself. Therefore here, being in the medium voice, where the properly the initiator and the recipient of the action are one and the same, and in the appropriate tense and number, it is translated, he preserved for himself. Now that rendering of the verb is quite emphatic, but the idea is nevertheless expressed in the text with the words, with his own blood. Therefore we see in the better manuscripts in this one instance anyway, and there are others, that Paul pronounces for Christ to be God, saying that God preserved the assembly for himself with his own blood. He's saying that Christ is God. Yahweh preserved Israel for himself with his sacrifice on their behalf as expressed in many of the sayings of the prophets. Isaiah 41, verse 14, Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith Yahweh, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Now, of course, Yahweh is thy Redeemer, as he tells us in so many other places in Isaiah. I am your Redeemer. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is Yahshua Christ. Jeremiah 50, verse 33. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the children of Israel and the children of Judah were oppressed together, and all that took themselves captives held them fast. All that took them captives held them fast. I'm sorry. They refused to let them go. Their Redeemer is strong. Yahweh of hosts is his name. He preserved them for himself with his own blood. He shall thoroughly plead their cause that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. And in the wider context of Jeremiah chapter 50, it's speaking of the ancient city of Babylon. I believe it's a... Um, it's also prophetic to the fall of mystery Babylon in certain aspects. Psalm 44. Thou art my king, O God. Command deliverances for Jacob. Through thee will we push down our enemies. Through thy name will we tread them under that rise up against us. 
For I will not trust in my bow, neither shall my sword or my AR-15 save me. Yeah, I did that. That's my interpolation. But now has saved us from our enemies and has put them to shame that hated us. Luke 168. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which had been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. Psalm 44, Luke 1. There's no change. There's no transition in the people who are the recipients of the promises. Luke goes on to say, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. There is no difference in the scope of the prophecies between the Old Testaments and the New Testaments. Anyone who attempts to make an assertion such as that fits into the next statement, which we see here from Paul. Verse 29. I know that after my departure, oppressive wolves shall come into you, not being sparing of the sheep. From John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, not for the wolves or the dogs. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf, cert, the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and cares not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. And he who is not gathering with me scatters. He came to gather the children of Israel and nobody else. If you attempt to gather anyone other but Israel to the sheepfold, you're not gathering with Christ. You're scattering. It's that simple. You're one of those oppressive wolves of Acts 20:29 20, and verse 30. And from among you men shall arise speaking distortions for which to draw away the students after themselves. Now following all of the other manuscripts, the NA27, the Nestle A land, Novum Testamentum Grece 27th edition, and the 28th edition, which is recently published, which I recently acquired a copy of, here has, and of them from among you, meaning 
a, a reference back to the wolves, right? The text of the Christogonian New Testament follows the Codex Vaticanus. And the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus are split in the language here. Paul is definitely making a distinction between the wolves and men from among you. Or he wouldn't have made the reference at all. Evidently, some scribes didn't understand that. That's why we have interpolations in Scripture, because men think that God needs help. In either case, there is a distinction between the wolves who enter in from the outside and those who arise to commit error from within the assembly itself. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, for instance, in verse 4, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, false brethren, they could claim to believe Jesus, but they're not Israelites, they're false brethren, unawares brought in who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Yahshua, that they might bring us into bondage. Paul's clearly making a distinction. Verse 31, on which account you be alert, remembering that for three years, and, and we could almost tell it's three years just from the context of, his, of the events which unfolded in Ephesus, that for three years, night and day, I did not stop with tears, admonishing everyone. Now, the codices. Beze and Laudianus add the words of you, admonishing everyone of you. And now I commit you to Yahweh and to the word of his favor, which is able to build and to give the inheritance which is in all those being sanctified. Who is being sanctified? Jeremiah, chapter 33, verse 7. And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, that sanctification, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. Israel and Judah, when they're repentant, they're those being sanctified. Nobody else can make that claim. Yahweh doesn't claim to cleanse anybody else's sin. Ezekiel 37. And I will make them, speaking of Israel and Judah, I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. Remember, Israel. E- Ezekiel is writing long after, long after most of Israel is taken away by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And they shall no more be two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, 
and I will be their God. That cleansing, that is sanctification. Only Israel is sanctified on the cross of Christ. Verse 33. I have lusted after no one, silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that my needs and those who were with me were supported by these hands. I have shown all things to you that laboring thusly it is necessary to assist those who are feeble and those and to remember the words of Prince Joshua that he said it is blessed to give rather than to receive. Paul, of course, set the example by working for his own bread whenever he could, yet his needs were met by the various assemblies when he could not, as he himself professes in his epistles. There is no record of any statement by Joshua in the gospel accounts that survived to us that it is blessed to give rather than to receive. The Novum Testamentum Grecae notes a few similar statements, such as the wisdom of Sirach, chapter 4, verse 31, where it says, Let not thine hand be stretched out to receive, and shut when thou shouldest repay. It seems to me Matthew 5, 7 is a candidate. Blessed are those having mercy by giving, because they shall be mercied in being rewarded from God. Verse 36. And saying these things, upon his kneeling with all of them, he prayed. And there was considerable weeping by all, and falling upon the neck of Paul, kissing him. Being distressed, being distressed, especially by the word which he spoke, that no longer are they going to see his face. And they escorted him to the ship. Paul was right. He never again returned to Greece. Rather, he was arrested in Jerusalem. He was sent to Rome and ultimately executed in Rome by Nero. There is no validity, and I might talk about it a little at the end of my presentation of Acts. There is no validity at all to the so-called lost chapter of Acts or Acts chapter 29. And there is no historical verification for the British Israel claim that Paul was ever freed from Rome and that Paul ever preached in Britain. It is all pure poppycock, to use a term of their own. It's all a lie. Sonini didn't, Sonini didn't fabricate the manuscript. I don't even think Sanini may have existed. So, some, well, <clears throat> some liar fabricated Acts chapter 29. The evidence is all over the, fa- the chapter itself. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night, Pragmatic Genesis Part 7. Yahweh willing, I will be here next Friday with Acts chapter 21. Praise Yahweh and good night.